You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, well, thank you all for being here. Um, this is the first part of a three-part series about what God does with doubt. Um, and our today, my title is Abraham Laughed, and you're going to wonder when I read this reading why because it's not about Abraham but it very much fits our topic so I'm going to go ahead and read for us before we pray Um, this is from Mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 27 hey y'all and when they came to the disciples they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation! How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? Hey, girl. And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything... Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. The word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for this day and the opportunity um, to worship you um, in this place with these people. Lord, I pray now that you would be with us, that you would open our eyes and our hearts um, to see and to receive your word. Lord, I pray that my words would be your words, that through them you would be glorified. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I know that scripture doesn't match our title or our topic today um, because it isn't about Abraham. But I think that passage, and particularly the father's cry, um, his honest exclamation, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, is a cry with which we can all identify We love the Lord, we know that he loves us, that he's for us, and that his plans for us are perfect. And yet, in our day-to-day lives, when the rubber meets the road, we easily find ourselves doubting the very things that we say we believe about our Lord. We are all prone to this, we all fall prey. Let me give you a personal example. It's a story I'm not very proud of. Um, (laughs) So when, I first, my family moved back here and I accepted the position as director of women's ministries. I was up to give a talk in the fall to the women, first time that I would be doing this. 
And um, I've gotten used to over the years, over my time um, serving in Texas, that whenever I had this sort of assignment that um, the Lord didn't really work the way that I wanted him to work because I'm a planner. I like things done ahead of time, all the things. And that just never worked out that way. But he had always provided what I needed, right? Maybe not in my timing, maybe not in my way, but he always provided it. So I know this. I'm not worried about it. I'm keeping on, keeping on, doing whatever I need to do. And then it gets to be the week before the talk. And... I've got nothing and the Lord is giving me nothing and every day I'm getting up and I'm reading my Bible like I do every day of my life and he's giving me nothing and I'm still thinking okay you know we've we've got a week it's gonna be okay well it gets to be Friday and the talk is on Tuesday and I still have nothing so I'm like okay well I've just got to get to work on this so you know I just start working on my talk and so I keep starting to write these talks and they are all terrible and they're horrible and I spend the whole weekend and I write nothing but garbage the whole weekend and I'm really kind of panicking and this whole time I get up in the mornings I'm like I don't have time to read my Bible I've got to write this talk and so I get to Monday and I've, I have the last of the terrible drafts and I go sit with Gil for my one-on-one um, -on -one meeting with him that I have every week and I'm just distraught you know I'm like I this is terrible this is terrible where is the gospel in this talk and he said well it's not like <laughs> thanks and then i was like i don't know what to do and he said i'll pray for you i love my boss <laughs> anyway what else could he say um but that's not what i wanted him to say i wanted him to fix it of course he couldn't so i got home that night and i'm just kind of in a panic and i thought about my question where is the gospel in this and then i thought okay what even is that what am i trying to say so i just sat at the table that night and I filled the front and back of a page of paper with everything that would answer the question, what is the gospel? Like, that's all. That's it. And then I went to bed. Still don't have a talk. Next morning's Tuesday. Given the talk that night. Got nothing. And um, I wake up that morning and I'm headed out to the kitchen, to, you know, try to white knuckle it through writing a talk again. And I just thought, you know, whatever happens today, I've got to be in the word like i haven't read my bible now in five days you know and i was like i just gotta do this so i go and i get in my chair like i would any other day but i hadn't in five days and i open up my bible and i read right where i'd left off and i finish reading that passage and there it is like immediately i'm like oh that's it that's the talk. that's it I wrote the talk in 30 minutes so as i said not proud of that story but there you go why would i doubt that God would do the thing he'd been faithful to do over and over again for me. Why would I doubt it in that moment? Well, you know why? Because I was afraid. I was afraid of looking stupid. You know, I was afraid that he wouldn't come through. It wasn't happening in my timing. It wasn't happening in my way. So I took over and that did not go so well for me. I'm sure none of you has ever done this, right? Well, we all struggle with doubt from time to time. Doubt is a normal part of our Christian life and witness. We see this from the very beginning of our redemptive history. Sin entered the world through Adam and Eve in the garden because they doubted the Lord. Throughout the rest of scripture, we see God's people doubt his goodness. And throughout scripture, we see God continuing to work in and through and for the benefit of his people, despite our doubt and the disobedience that tends to accompany our doubt. Now in this three-part series, we're going to examine a few case studies in doubt among God's people. 
So the subject of each case study is a believer in the one true God, someone that the Lord would call faithful. So we'll look at the circumstance that fuels each person's doubt, how each person responds to his or her doubt, and finally, what God does with our doubt. So we're going to start with Abraham. Um, I love this. It's, it's not fine art. I just love the way she's looking at him. Look how exasperated <laughs> she looks. I just love this. Anyway, um, so whenever I'm struggling with doubt, I like to think about Abraham because three different places in Scripture we read, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So it's a great comfort to me to know that Abraham, who believed the Lord and it, as a result was considered righteous in God's eyes, also struggled with doubt. So we're going to review his story a little bit to begin. We don't know much about Abraham's early life. We first hear of him in Genesis 11. He's 75 years old by the time we encounter him formally and meet him formally in Genesis 12. And at that point, his name is Abram. But we do know that he was from a nation that worshiped pagan gods. In Joshua 24, we read, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So Abram came from Ur, which is in Mesopotamia, where the people worshiped the moon god Nana. And yet, in Genesis 12, we read that the Lord calls Abram to go to a place that the Lord will show him. God's call is a call for Abram to move far away from his home and family. Now, moving miles away from family is common in our culture. We do it all the time. But this was really unheard of in Abram's. The family unit was very important. To move hundreds of miles away from your family was just unheard of. Um, but Abram went as the Lord had told him. He left everything, his job, security, family, home. He left it all without even knowing where he was going. So that's really all we know as Abram's story begins. But the most important thing to know about Abram is that God spoke to him and Abram obeyed. So first we read in Genesis 1, let me see if I can get this little doodad to do its thing. Okay. So this is where the Lord calls Abram. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we read here is that God chose Abram, a virtual unknown, without much of a resume, as far as we can tell from Scripture. We only read two things about Abram, actually, before God speaks to him. He's the son of Terah, and his wife, Sarai, is barren. But God chooses this old man from a pagan nation. Abram looks completely unremarkable. The point is, what makes Abram remarkable is that God chose him. God chose Abram and made big promises to him. So he promised to make Abram a great nation. This would be the nation of Israel, who God will give his laws and with whom God will make a covenant, that they will be his people and he will be their God, the nation that God himself will dwell among and through whom Messiah will come and bless the whole world. To bless Abram and make his name great. Can you see, Tandy? 
in direct contrast to the shenanigans of the people at Babel trying to make their name great on their own, through their own accomplishment. And to bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse him. Abram left behind his security when he left home. But God promises Abram here that he is his security. He is his protector. He is on Abram's side. Now, can you guys see? Did I scoot right into Okay. <laughs> and through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God promises not only to bless Abram and Abram's family, but that the entire world to the ends of the earth and the end of time as we know it would be blessed through Abram, whose offspring will be blessed by God. And through those offspring, all other families who ever live will be blessed by God. How? Because Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, will come through Abram's lineage. So <clears throat> certainly having received all of these amazing promises of God, Abram never doubted, right? <laughs> Wrong. Well, Abram and his wife, Sarai, were very old people when God called Abram. And remember, Sarai is barren. So God's promise that Abram would have descendants seemed ridiculous to Abram and his wife. We see the couple doubt God's ability to make this happen over and over. Now, what do we tend to do when things aren't going the way that we think they should? When things are not working out the way we want? What's our tendency? Yeah, yeah. So we tend to do one of two things. We either give up hope, which is where we find Abram and Sarah at this point. They're like, we're super old. We're never having kids. Um, and then, if not that, we tend to try to take over. We try to start to manipulate circumstances so that things will work out the way that we want. Well, that's exactly Abram and Sarai's next move. Um, now that God's promise of children has given their hopelessness a flicker of hope. So, rather than trusting God to do all that he has promised he will do, Abram doubts God and goes about trying to run his life on his own terms. So first, they leave the land that the Lord sent them to or brought him to because there's a famine in the land and they go to Egypt. Now, this is reasonable enough, right? Nobody wants to starve. The problem is there's nowhere in scripture that records Abram consulting the Lord before he makes this decision. They just take off. And um, this veering from doing what he was told leads to opportunities for sin. So this is a great, this is the stuff of reality TV. So <laughs> Abram <laughs> realizes that his wife Sarai is a hottie and he's worried that Pharaoh will decide that he would like to have Sarai as his wife. So Abram concocts this great plan. Sarai, you tell him you're my sister, not my wife. That way, this doesn't protect Sarai from the Pharaoh. This just protects Abram from being killed so that the Pharaoh can have her. So it's totally a self-protection move on his part. But this is what happens. And so, yes, uh, Pharaoh does take Sarai as um, one of his wives. Um, and then another way that Abram doubts the Lord and goes about trying to fix things he doubts God's provision, even though God assures Abram on three separate occasions that he will be the father of a multitude. We read in Genesis 12, I will make of you a great nation, the Lord says. In Genesis 13, for all the land you see, I will give to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as a dust of the earth. So if one, sorry, so if, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. 
and in Genesis 15, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. Your own, your very own son shall be your heir. Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And it's after this final promise that we read, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So despite receiving the direct word of God's promise for him and his descendants, and even believing the Lord, as scripture tells us Abram did, Abram still doubted God's ability to back it up. On different occasions, Abram, Abram and his wife both laugh at the Lord's promise of descendants. Why? Because from Abram's limited perspective, God's promises seemed impossible. Because our focus naturally settles on our seemingly impossible circumstances rather than the greatness of God, all we can see are the obstacles and the hurdles. See, at this point, it's been 10 years since the Lord promised Abram he'd have all these children. Well, he and Sarai haven't gotten any less old, and Sarai hasn't found herself to be any less barren. Maybe God doesn't really understand how the science of all this works. So Sarai hatches a plan, and Abram goes along with it. God has promised them children, but obviously he needs some help making this happen. So Sarai gives her maid, Hagar, to Abram to produce the heir. No way that could cause problems down the road. And how does God respond to all of Abram and Sarai's shenanigans? Does he say, never mind, I'll find somebody else to be the father of many nations? No. Instead, we learn a truth that's difficult for our navel-gazing selves, but if we can accept it, this truth is a word of rest and freedom. Abram and Sarai are not the stars of their story. We are not the stars of our story. This story isn't about Abram and Sarai and their ability to make a great nation. This story and all of the stories since the beginning of time and until the end of the age are God's story. God is the star of the story and he doesn't need any co-stars. He uses us for sure, but he doesn't need us. He doesn't need our input or our ingenuity to fulfill his purposes and he will not let our doubts and our responses to that doubt, our meddling thwart his plans. We see God's grace in the way that the story of redemption begins with a God who promises to do what is impossible by human limitations. It is only God who can, as the Apostle Paul writes, raise the dead and call into existence the things that do not exist. So despite Abram's misguided participation, we see God continue to reassure this couple and reaffirm his promises in powerful ways. So even though Abram's move to Egypt provided an opportunity for sin, God saves Abram and Sarai in this situation by afflicting Pharaoh with a plague. And the plague is the thing that makes Pharaoh think, oh wait, something's wrong here. And so he susses it all out and figures out, oh wait, this is his wife, get out. So um, that's how they get away from Pharaoh. And not only does God not revoke his promises to Abram, he doubles down on them, reiterating his promises, his covenant with Abram. 
earlier we read God's amazing, comprehensive, and generous covenant um, where he said, go from your country and I will make of you a great nation. I will um, bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in Genesis 15, we read that Abram directly questions the Lord, not once, but three times about these promises. And each time the Lord patiently reassures him. God says, fear not, I am your shield. Oh, hold on. Oh, there we go. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram says, well, that's great and all, but what are you going to give me since this having a child thing doesn't seem to be working out? And then Abram says, and another thing, since you haven't given me an heir like you promised, I guess this guy that lives and works in our house will have to do. And God says, no, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram says, well, but how am I going to know I get to possess it? I don't have like a deed or anything. How am I going to prove to people that this is mine? And this is where we read about a ceremony that shows us something really important about this covenant that God has made with Abram. God sends Abram to collect a young heifer, goat, ram, and a couple of birds. Now, Abram would have recognized this strange grocery list as being part of making a contract. It was the custom for contracts to be made by sacrificially cutting animals in half, laying the split carcasses on the ground, and the two parties involved in the contract walking between the split carcasses together, signifying that this was a bilateral or conditional covenant which means that both parties are responsible for upholding the covenant. Both of them are responsible for keeping the promises of the contract. But in Genesis 15, we read that God alone manifested as smoke and fire the same way he will assure Israel of his presence with them in the wilderness. God alone moves between the halves of the animals. Verses 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The covenant God makes with Abram of plentiful land and abundant descendants is unconditional, meaning that Abram has no responsibility for keeping the promises of the covenant. Only God will uphold and keep this covenant. Only God can. And because this covenant is based solely on who God is, it cannot fail because God cannot fail. However, we see proof of Abram's just like usness in that immediately after this amazing covenant ceremony, that's when Abram agrees to go along with Sarai's 
plot to impregnate her maid. And still, we see God's grace even in the midst of Abram and Sarai's doubt here. The Lord sends an angel to meet Hagar, the maid caught in the middle of this. And God promises Hagar that the child she has conceived will be blessed. God also gives Abram the right of circumcision as a specific sign of the covenant. This means that every male in Abram's line was to be circumcised, carrying with him a lifelong mark in his flesh that they belonged to the Lord and were part of God's physical blessing in the world. Based on the promises that God made with him, God changes Abram's name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And Abram's wife name, wife's name from Sarai to Sarah. Now this is the subject of some debate because apparently both names really mean princess, but some commentators seem to suggest that Sarah refers more to like royalty for like a multitude versus like a family. That's not the important part. The important part is anytime the Lord changes someone's name in scripture, it means he's about to put that person to good, to good use, that he is setting them apart for his special purposes and plan. See, even at this point, Sarah remains barren. This is decades after the Lord's initial promise. They've been waiting for years. But God consistently promises this barren elderly couple a child. In fact, in Genesis 17 through 19, God asserts six times that Abraham will have an offspring who will be the heir to the promise. And of course, God keeps all his promises to Abraham. God gives Abraham all the land he can see, although Abraham never actually receives it. Israel will possess the land after Abraham's death under Joshua's leadership. But Israel's true hope is the heavenly city of which Canaan was only a type. God gives an elderly, childless couple a son. The promise Abraham and Sarah thought so ridiculous, they laughed at the Lord. But God, with whom nothing is impossible, gives this couple Isaac, whose name means laughter. And this happens when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. And God also kept his promise of blessing, that all the earth would be blessed through Abraham. Abraham's son, Isaac, will be the father of Jacob and ultimately all of Israel, from whose line Jesus will be born. So in Abraham and Sarah's doubt, we see a couple of important things. We see the Lord's abundant grace on brilliant display, but we also see that Abraham and Sarah still suffer the natural consequences of the sins they commit in response to their doubt. God's grace and forgiveness, his ability to redeem and use us anyway, does not keep us from the consequences of our sin. We also see that God is, is constantly at work, reassuring and refining people in their faith, putting them face to face with their doubt. God asks Abraham and Sarah a question, is anything too hard for the Lord? God's questions are always rhetorical. He knows all the answers. The questions God asks are always for the purposes of leading his people to repentance. God answers our doubt with the assurance, nothing is too hard for me. And finally, we see that even in the midst of a lot of doubt and several bouts of disobedience, we still see Abraham continue to faithfully follow the Lord. Abraham goes when God says go, 
Abraham gathers and prepares the animals for the covenant sacrifice according to God's instructions. Abraham has all the males of his household circumcised as God commands. And when God tells Abraham that he must sacrifice his only son, Isaac, the one he waited for for so many years, Abraham is ready to obey up to the very last minute when the Lord provides a substitute. Even in the midst of his doubt, Abraham kept following God. God continued to use Abraham for his great purposes, and God continued to strengthen Abraham in his faith. Abraham doubted God, but he also followed God. Imperfectly, for sure. And God counted Abraham's faith to him as righteousness. Despite Abraham's doubt, God kept his promises to him. All of the blessings, yes, but the Lord also gave Abraham life, not just the life in Sarah's womb, his son, his only son, Isaac, but life everlasting through his offspring to come, Jesus Christ, God's son, his only son, for whom there would be no ram in the thicket for a substitute, but who would willingly give up his life for the ransom of many. Life tests our faith. Abram obeyed God in faith, and what happened? Famine. He went where God told him to go, and famine happened. We can all name times in our lives that this has happened to us. When we felt like we stepped out in faith and the circumstances of life threatened to overwhelm us, maybe you moved to Texas and ended up living in a hotel for four months. <laughs> but what good news we find in Scripture that we can believe God and struggle with doubt at the same time. The enemy doesn't want us to believe that. The enemy wants us to believe that if we doubt, we aren't really good Christians. The enemy wants us to keep our doubt to ourselves, to be ashamed of our doubt. But the good news we find in Scripture is that we can and should share those doubts with our Lord and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't have to be ashamed of our doubt because scripture shows us over and over that the Lord can actually use our doubt to strengthen our faith. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we learn when we ask all the questions. We learn when we doubt our doubt. This is the life of a disciple of Christ, following Jesus with just enough belief to keep following, with moments of great faith and moments of crushing doubt. And as we follow and doubt and wander and doubt and believe and doubt, our Good Shepherd continually reassures, redirects, corrects, shows, and uses us. He uses us while he's still correcting and showing and redirecting. It's amazing. We don't have to understand or even be able to imagine the how, the means by which God will accomplish what he says that he will do. We only need to believe who has given the promise. How much or how well do we have to believe? Just like the dad in the story, I believe, help my unbelief. We are not the stars of our story. Five times in his covenant with Abraham, God says, I will. It isn't up to us. It can't be up to us. It can only be up to God for whom nothing is impossible. Our doubt does not will not and cannot thwart the sovereign plans of God. And our doubt does not, will not, and cannot stop 
his never ending love for us. So we're out of time. But um, next week, we're going to pick up. I've got a psalm I want to share with you. And also, because um, the psalms are great examples of this. And then also, we're going to talk a little bit about John the Baptist's story. So um, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Holy God, I pray that you will take these words um, and use them, Lord. Use them to our good and for your glory. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.